0: Alright folks, here we are, uh, Season 6, Episode 9, you know, a little bit sad, just ahead and play on the old uh, uh, podcast stream, doesn't seem to be good, I mean not podcast stream, uh, HBO Go, or HBO Now, I don't know which one I have, I think I have Now, whichever one you pay for, um, but here we're talking Season 6, Episode 9, Battle of the Bastards. And oh boy, this is one, you know, people are, if you, if you have the internet, which apparently you do, but if you listen to this podcast, or maybe not, you don't need, I guess you just need a freaking data plan. You say, that's not exactly, I say, you got me, you got me, you're right. It's a good thing, you know, uh, 48% of my brain's contrarian. Oh no, 51%. Sorry, thanks. I know you had to correct me on that. But this is, I got a lot of, uh, timestamps this episode because there was so much, uh, Starts out with Tard Balls of Twine. That's actually, I didn't even realize this till now. There's no note here, but I said, that's a good, that would be a good song. I don't know if Jethro tall, Tard Balls of Twine. Yeah, maybe a Jug Band would be better. I see him, bow down, see the bow down, down, sit him down, bow the Tard Balls. Sorry, I didn't mean to sing too much. That was more twanging, mouth twanging. Uh Yeah, I'm looking at here, that's just, and they get lit up, and they get, uh, uh, pitch to Marine. And and they think that was pitch on there, but they also get pitched to Marine. Uh, the Khaleesi watches. Tyrion flinches. Oh boy, what an image. Really amazing, amazing uh, special effects and uh, directing in this episode. Uh, but Tyrion tries to say, hey, the Khaleesi, everything's pretty good. Uh, looking good. You know, city's on the rise. And then there's a. Uh, He's like, well, maybe we should take shelter. She goes, the city's on the rise. He's like, yeah, it's strong commerce in the market. People love you. And, uh, you know, that's why everybody's been out of shape, because the masters don't like that things are going so well. You know, because it proves if if things are going well in Marine, it proves that we don't need them. A couple other notes here. Uh, There was a ram's horn on a table, three. I don't know what that means. Ramshorn on a table? Question mark three. Uh, Khaleesi looks while Tyrion talks. His BS was pretty damn good. There's a lot of vases and vases. Uh, small ones on the table. Big ass. Uh, what does this say? Hold on, I got to change the lighting in here because it's. Uh... Sorry, I had to change the lighting. I figured that would help with my handwriting. Ramsorn on table three. We didn't know oh, two stars. I think that means look that up later. A giant vase is decoration. That's another note I want to look up later. Big, ash, and good. Shall we bring lots of vases? Oh, shall we begin, Khaleesi says. And he says, uh, do we have a plan? Khaleesi's like, oh, I got a plan. It's called being a badass. And Tyrion says, well, and she goes, oh, you don't approve? He goes, well, I thought you were more merciful and, you know, plotted out uh, things, Khaleesi. I didn't think you were like your father, you know, or your uncle or whatever, merciless, like merciless Ming. And and Khaleesi says, okay, tell me more. Maybe she did that. I don't know. I was just saying that because it sounded good. A big, a nice big vase on a table with a smaller one by it. And the centurion says, "Alternate approach." And then there's a wide shot. I think that's a, it. Looks like it could be the word "wide." Could also be any word. It does look like a W, I, D, but there also could be another letter and an R, but that doesn't make a word. Uh, but we have a meeting. With the conceitful, is that what that says? Conceitful, confident. No, they are conceitful though. But I wrote confident at the time. Masters, there's a bay in the background, and this is a slow burn scene. Such a slow burn because they're they're being jerks. You know, they're like, okay, we're here to discuss uh, uh, surrender, and the masters think it's a Khaleesi surrender. Surrender, and they're like, well, no, we're not going to. You know, you're you're you've lost. Uh, your reign is over. Uh, they're saying all the stuff we're going to do. And he said, well, we didn't clear. Or, uh, Tyrion says, "We didn't. maybe we weren't clear. It's your surrender. Or maybe Khaleesi says that, not mine. And they say, well, yeah, it's tough to get used to the fact, Khaleesi, you're not a badass. And she goes, oh, yeah. Uh, she, they say, your reign is over. She says, my reign has just begun. Uh, but at 8.05, and I'm not kidding, this episode, you know, I guess I probably won't even think to put this in the show notes because it would be even more confusing. You know, my show notes are confusing enough. But here's the 8.05 is the timestamp. stamp. Uh, as the masters talk, you just see this dragon diving in the background. It's just such a, uh, was so wonderful. And then she says, your reign is, over they say, and she says, my reign has just begun. And then we get some Dungeons and Dragon, you know, Monster Manual style cover landing of the dragon, and the Khaleesi climbs on, and then she flies out, and then the other dragons bust out of the pyramid. And I said, "That must not be a load bearing wall." I said, "Did those dragons check to see if that was a load bearing wall before they uh, melted it?" And then they coordinate flying. That was a tough, it really was a bad looking word. I was able to, and then, you know, the dragons are doing stuff. The Dothraki roll in with, uh, Dario Naharis at the front. The dragons mess up a ship. It was they, she says Drakaris. and man, did, I mean, I, this, what is, I don't know what the budget is or if they did a lot with a smaller budget. I mean, bigger than season five, clearly. But, I mean, man, it looks good. Like, the dragon, you can see, like, rippling and scale. Like, I don't know if it has scales. It has more very lizard-like, I guess, because it's a lizard. Is it Tyrannosaurus Rex? Does that mean thunder lizard? You know, dragons are such a, I mean, it's a tough thing. When you deal in dragons, or I guess when you dance with dragons, was not that one take uh, George R. R. A little while? But, I mean, it's tough to not, I mean, there's been a history of movies messing dragons up, I think, where people have met, you know, boys of my generation, young women of my generation, dragon fans. You go, this is finally the movie where they're going to get it, and then you go, oh. And, you know, and I guess a little part of you, it doesn't, you know, it just curls up inside you, like the dragon lover part of you. It says, oh, that's not, that's not a drag. I mean, that's not the total drag. These are total dragon packages in an unexpected way, because these are very worm-like, W-R-Y, that one, W-Y-R-M or whatever. Uh, So Bravo, rippling skin, the boat gets toasted. Uh, Then Grey Worm deals with the, he tells the soldiers, he says, hey, go home. You know, hit the road, go back to your families. And then uh, Tyrion deals with the masters. He says, you know, thanks for the ships, but we made a pact and uh, you violated that pact. Uh, now, our queen's forgiven, but you, you know, we got to deal with this. Uh, this one was very political, I think. There's this nice message in here because he says, uh, it always seems to the masters," he says. "It always seems a bit abstract, doesn't it? Other people passing away, you know. He's talking about sending young men off to war, I believe. Uh, so I applaud their ability to kind of make a, you know, nice uh, tuck some statements in there. And then Grayworm, when he deals with it, after he deals with it, he, he adjusts his vest downward. I don't have a timestamp on that, but it was really, it was hilarious and it very, you know, he had. His vest had become, un, it wasn't tucked, it was just, yeah, it had to be pulled down. I guess it was, what do you call it, cinch? No, what do you call that? Like, a, not a wedgie, because it was a vest, and there's really nothing for a vest to wedge in. I don't know, riding up, I guess that's what you say, his vest was riding up. And then uh, Tyrion pat, pats the last master on the shoulder, and we we have dragons flying in the sky. And the dude closes his eyes. And then we have the Boltons and the Starks meeting, and Ramsay's all smiles, uh, Sansa's grim. And, you know, he's got, he's, oh, my beloved wife, I've missed you terribly. Thanks for returning, Lady Bolton. And then he says, you know, you guys could kneel before me, and, you know, I'll, I'll pardon you. And he says, There's really no need for battle, you know, Jon Snow. Why don't you get off your knees? And, or get on your knees, you know, and, and give up. Get off your horse. Get on your knees. And when he says, uh, uh, What does he say? Pardon these traitorous lords. When he's, you know, Ramsey's being very dramatic, just like he was on a stage. 1448 is the time. Uh, the Lady of Bear Island, Lady um, Mormon. Her look is worth, probably, I'd probably pay $4 million for her look. She's this, whatever, I don't know how old she is, 11, I would say. Maybe she's, yeah, maybe she's somewhere between nine and, yeah, I'd say 11 years old. She has this fierce look on her face. It's so good. Uh, traitor, right on traitorous houses. And Ramsey even has a goal to say, I'm a man of uh, mercy. And then John says, yeah, you know, you're right, uh, uh, jackass. There's no need for battle. Uh, You know, no soldiers have to deal. So let's do it the old-fashioned way, you versus me. And one thing about Ramsey, as much as he's a coward, but he doesn't break either. Like, I don't know. I mean, we should get a hold of his brain to study it. Uh, Probably wouldn't do us any good. But, uh, you know, because... uh, It's just his ability, his cognitive dissonance, uh, even while he's a coward, he's able to maintain, I mean, he's not an alpha male, but I think he has some, like, thing beyond alpha, but only, like, 20% of him. I mean, he's just a horrible, horrible person. And his ability to maintain this cognitive dissonance with this false dominance, or, I mean, it actually is dominance... I don't know, I'm not, that's why I don't have, you know, I don't deal in, I deal in madness, uh, but just my own. But uh, he says, yeah, John Snow, I don't know, I heard you're tough, so I really don't want to deal with you. He goes, I got a bigger army, my daddy's army, you know, but, uh, well, I and also the other guys I bribed. He goes, you got to double your, double your numbers. And John says, well, who's going to want to fight for you when you won't fight for them? And then Ramsay says, uh, oh, he's good. Very good. Uh, and he wags his finger. Such good act. I mean, is ter- good. It's good acting. And uh, very, I mean, he, that guy's got Ramsay down. Oh, you're good. Very good, Jon Snow. And then Santa, Sansa interrupts him. Uh, first, he says, you know, tell me, you know, why don't you just surrender? Don't you care about Rickon? And they say, well, how do you know you got him? He goes, well, if you want to know more about Rickon. And then Sansa interrupts him. She goes, you're going to die tomorrow, Lord Bolton. Sleep well. And that's how I signed all my emails. So I fell out of my chair. And did a jig, then I did a dance, then I did a break dance, then I sang a song, and then I rewound it. And she says, sleep well. I said, does Sansa listen to the podcast? And Co said, Sansa's fictional character. And I said, oh, but the acting, her acting in this episode is uh, unbelievable. She says, you're going to die tomorrow, Lord Bolton. Sleep well. And then she's off. Uh, That's at about 1710. And Ramsey tries to intimidate the men. What does this say? Oh, there's a continuity error because he talks about his dogs after Sansa's gone. Usually, I've ne- this might be the only continuity error I've ever noticed in my life. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't bother me at all. Uh, in the morning, then bastard, he says. And then this is 1833, and if you watch again, start at 1833, just during the planning with the Onion Knight and John, just watch Sansa the whole time. She kind of glares, and then she sighs, and she looks down while John and the Onion Knight are talking about their plan for Ramsay, and then the camera moves in closer. She kind of sighs again. And then Torman talks about the horses and the cavalry working and there's kind of a joke about how Torman doesn't know military terminology, about pincers and flanking, which I don't I never knew I don't still don't understand what the hell a flank is. Is that your side or your butt? Like if you slap someone in the flank, isn't that their butt? So I never understood why if if they're flanking you, does it mean they're coming at you from the side or the back? And I said, but, and I think in this case, it sounded like it was the side. They said, we got the sides covered. But then they're talking about, well, let's just get him to charge at us, and then we'll trap him. Uh, horses, we have, we need patience. And Sansa's eyes move as they're talking, but she's not pleased. Her lips are in this perfect line. And then Tormund says, Jesus, John, you didn't think, uh, Wait, do you think he would fight you? And John goes, no, I want him angry and full tilt. And they're like, okay, let's all get some sleep. We've got to be sharp. And then we have uh, Sansa, starts, or she already started to dominate this episode in the most wonderful way, but she says, so you've met the enemy, drawn up your bla- battle plans. And John's like, yeah. And she goes, and you've known him for a single conversation, you and your trusted advisors, and you make plans to defeat a man you don't know. And Sansa goes, I know him pretty well. And she goes, You didn't even ask me for any insight, uh, this fucking patriarchy He's driving me nuts. Is what she really wants to say. And like, there was a lot of people on the show. But she goes, Don't you know I'm a badass? Like, and you know, I I can t- I know what this person's like. You think he's going to fall into your trap? He's the one who lays traps, just like Heisenberg is the one who knocks. Uh. I am the man who knocks, he says, and she goes, Ramsey's the one who traps. And John's like, no, no, he's overconfident. And she's like, no, 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 he's toying with you. He's way better at doing it. He's been doing it his whole life. Uh, and John takes it, you know, as an assault on his masculinity. He's like, oh, I've been against worse. And she goes, you don't know him. He goes, okay, tell me. He goes, how are we going to save Rick? And she goes, Ain't wrong. Okay, that, well, that one's not going to happen. And she, she, John's like, what are you kidding me? I'm John Snow, super nice guy. I don't give up on anybody. And she goes, you're going to make a mistake, John. And he goes, well, what should I do? And she goes, well, I don't know. I don't know anything about battles. Just don't do what he wants you to do. And John goes, yeah, it's good advice. And she goes, you think it's obvious? And he goes, well, and a bit obvious. uh," And she goes, well, if you wanted my voice, I would tell you not to attack Winterfell. Wait till we have more people. And then they go back and forth. And John's like, this is, you know, against all odds, we're going to win. And she goes, well, I'm not going to Winterfell. So, uh," and John's like, I'll protect you, I promise. She goes, no one can protect me. No one can protect anyone. She doesn't say it like that, though. Uh, Let me see what else I get. How do we... Uh, At the height of the argument, Sansa's, like, really breathing heavy. It adds to the drama. And then Sansa says no one can save anyone or whatever. And she's just so cool, very cool. And then John stares out of the tent after her. And we have Onion and Tormund Night talking about hope and kings and, you know, Jesus, uh, maybe we should have, we were working with these kings. First there's a joke about, you know, metaphors and Tormund doesn't get metaphors, but they say, yeah, maybe our mistake was uh, trying to disbelieve in kings. And then Tormund says, well, John Snow's not a king. That wasn't really good, but he says, no, he's not. And then. He says, well, I'm going to go have some, like, uh, g- sour goat's milk. That's that's his booze. Uh, better than grape water. But, onion you know, says, no, I like to walk uh, before battle. I can't sleep. Uh, so when I walk out of camp, I use the restroom. And he goes, well, enjoy the restroom visits. Uh, then we have John and the Red Woman. And this is like uh, the comic relief, this scene kind of. Uh, she she He says, hey, where were you? She at the War Council. And she goes, I'm not a soldier. And he goes, any advice? She goes, don't lose. And that was gold. And he says, well, just don't, you know, no more, uh, you know, magic tricks. And she goes, well, I just follow my God. I don't listen to you. I'm a serf of the Lord of Light. And he goes, well, if I don't want to come back, she goes, I don't care. I do what the Lord of Light wants. I got no power, only what the Lord of Light, you know, Light has me do. And she goes, and and I'm not saying it's fair. She goes, maybe this is just a small part of the plan that doesn't make any sense, uh, and it's not fair. And John, this is a really good she John says, what kind of God would do something like that? And she says, the one we've got. It has, I said, man, I love it. I love that. And again, just a very timely. I thought. Uh, Let's see, Jon Snow. Any advice? Oh, and then uh, caresses her. I don't know. Oh, as Jon Snow leaves, there's a long shot of her silhouette in her tent, which was nice, a real long one. Which leads us to the next scene, which is onion uh, Knight walking. He finds Shireen's, Shireen's, Shireen's uh, stag and some ashes. He picks picks it up. I think he figures it out. And then there's a. I could use this as a poster just in case anyone uh, listens to. I, I know I don't know, but, but if anyone listens works on Game of Thrones and listens to this, twenty eight nineteen, that should be a poster. It's onion night against the sun. Against the sky, you couldn't tell if it was like the sunrise, the sunset, or just like northern lights or something. It was a beautiful shot. It almost reminded me of the end of the latest Star Wars a little bit for some reason. And I just, I loved that scene. 2819. Onion at sunset. Onion at dusk. Onion at sunset. I don't know. I guess, uh, onion night at dawn. Onion night in the morning, uh, I don't know. I, I can't even think of anything witty. I'm already laughing, though. Okay, then we have, uh, Tyrion, who's still bitter. We have Tyrion, the Khaleesi, uh, Theon and Yara making their plea to the Khaleesi and Tyrion, but Tyrion's still got a resentment towards, uh, 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 what's his name? I already forgot. Theon, too many T names for me to remember. He's like, you know, you 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 bullied me, and you know, Theon says, Jesus, that was a long time ago. And he go, and uh, Tyrion the, uh, can't even. He says, well, how's the things been going for you? Not so well, huh? He goes, I heard you did bad, up to bad stuff. He goes, well, not what you think, uh, but just as bad. And then Yara said, he's paid for it, and Tyrion's not having it. it doesn't seem like it. And I didn't quite understand how angry Tyrion was, but uh, I guess I'd have to rewatch season one because, like, oh, you're so complicated. It uh, must have been hard for you growing up at Winterfell, not knowing who you are. But then we all lead, live complicated lives. And then Khaleesi says, all right, it's politics time. So you've got 100 ships with sailors. Uh, what do you expect? Uh, Tyrion, you want me to support you to be king? He goes, not my claim. He goes, you're Yara's. And the Khaleesi says, what's wrong with you? He goes, I'm not fit to rule. And then of course Tyrion says, well, I could, at least we can agree on that. And then we get this little Yara-Khaleesi connection. To Khaleesi says, well, is that, have you ever had a queen before? And Yara's like, no. Uh, but or your uncle Euron came and took the throne from Yara, stole it. So we jetted out of there. And then Khaleesi said, I heard your dad was a terrible king. And Yara says, yeah, just like yours. And Khaleesi likes her confidence. She goes, yeah, we both dealt with usurpers too. Uh, Khaleesi, even when Tyrion says, I'm not fit to rule she has this impressed look with Yara. And then they say, "Well, Euron, Euron's going to come here too, but he wants to, you know, marry you and use you. In addition to giving you, uh, you know, uh, stuff, including you know, uh, stuff, stuff." And she goes, "Well, you, you know, I don't have to marry anyone in this situation." And uh, Euron says, "Well, you know, I'm not making demands, but I'm up for anything." Khaleesi gets kicked out of that uh, he goes, he, and then Tyrion's, or, uh, the end's like, he's just going to, uncle would just use you to get to the seven kingdoms. And Khaleesi's is like, well, what do you want? And they go just the iron islands back. Uh, and Khaleesi's like, yeah, that's it. And then they said, take out our uncle, uh, and anyone that thinks a woman can't rule. And Khaleesi says, okay. And then Tyrion says, well, what if everybody wants independence? Uh, And Khaleesi says, relax, you know, people can ask. I just don't have to say yes. Uh, But she goes, you know, then uh, she says, you know, our fathers were evil men and they left the world worse than they found it. We're not going to do that. We're going to leave the world better than we found it. So she goes, you support me to take over seven kingdoms and no reaving or any of that reaving type stuff. And, you know, you'll have a deal, and you're always like, huh. And then end gives her this slight nod, and then she says, all right, you got a deal. And then uh, they do this cute little hand, the arm shake they do. Uh, Khaleesi has trouble. I'm surprised this is her first arm shake, but she has trouble with it, and then she seems delighted with it. And this will be interesting how we run through the rest of this. It uh, starts out with banners uh, out on the battlefield. It's quiet. Everybody's waiting. We see the Stark Banner's in tough shape. Uh, last, uh, oh, Last Giant's there, the Free Folk. Winterfell's in the, in the distance in the background. Uh, Bolton banners got some frost on it. That looked good. Uh, way more professional soldiers uh, with Ramsey. And then Ramsay appears with a rope, but he's going slow on his horse. And then we see that Stark dude, who looks pretty tough actually, uh, now out on the battlefield. And then we see Rickon, and John sees it, and Ramsay plays a little game. And John falls right into what does exactly what Ramsey wants. And Ramsey even does this color money move up with the pool shot. So they play pool out there. They have this giant pool tournament. Uh, but it's this crazy uh, Bolton-esque pool. I think it's different. I think it was a combination of snooker pool and chess. So let's see if I can run through it. So John... Uh, like John was, was, uh, put his snooker ball right out in the middle of the field, the, like the, the, with the green, the, what do you call that? Pool table, which I think that was, I guess, I don't know. It was one ball. So I guess it was like the, the white ball. And then, uh, he says, uh, you know, I'm going to go get Ramsey. So he tries to cross the thing, but I guess then he gets bumped into the bumpers in the middle. So I don't know if that's snooker or bumper pool. Um, and everyone's like, dude, what are you doing? Like Tormin looks at him, He's like, don't do it. Ramsey smiles. Cause now John's like bumping off the bumpers in the middle of the field. So the onion knight's like, All right, get ready guys. Uh, what we're going to do is throw pawns, uh, so they throw pawns. Ramsey throws pawns, which just makes it harder for the balls to roll around and causes some balls to roll off. And then, believe it or not, uh, John had a knight for the chess part. But that fall, he falls off, or the knight falls off of his ball. Really cool how it's balanced on the ball. And then Ramsey Ramsey has just what he wants. He starts rolling tons of uh, balls at John to knock John's ball in a pocket, which I think that was a battle. Like I thought that was the thing, but then it ends up just like surrounding it, like jams all the bumpers. So then there's like uh, chess pieces and pool balls and the bumpers, and everything's getting gummed up in the middle and bouncing off each other. Like chess pieces are getting like. Uh, you see, chess pieces on a pool table, that's not a good idea for the chess pieces because these are your plastic chess pieces, you know. So it's like they, they don't. And then I think they even threw, like, those plastic army men because then it's, like, all gummed up. And then, I mean, can you imagine how hard, you know, Ramsey's rolling those pool balls. And meanwhile, Jon Snow, he only had one, and now it's stuck. So he's just, like, stuck in and saying, hey, block everything with your, and everybody's throwing um uh I don't know how many chess pieces they had, more than, you know, a couple sets, throwing chess pieces at each other. Uh but you go back when John Spoolball was just on the on the pool table by itself, uh yeah, that was at 429, 4029. there's like this goodbye music and you say, Is that too early? Is that the end of the episode or not? And then when Ramsey wants uh, his men to throw chess pieces, it says knock. And then when they throw them, John was like ducking because they're actually throwing them across the uh, pool table. They said, good thing you rented this place out because I'm never going to get my deposit back uh, with this behavior. Actually, I used a, uh, I said, well, I'm Danny Martin. You know, my father's George R.R., and they said, "Danny, I don't know if he has a son." And I said, "Well, just you want to call him." They said, "You think, you don't you think?" Uh, I, you know. And they said, "Well," I said, "See, I got my cap and everything." And then they said, "Well, prove it." And then I said, "Well, here's an ode to the Jets. Oh, with woe, I watch the Jets like John Snow on a field, you know, cold and wet." a Sunday comes and I'm supposed to, you know, and then I'm supposed to work at, and then they say, okay, okay, close. You know, I guess maybe you are considering you're here with John Snow and Ramsey Bolton. And, you know, I say, yeah, what do you think it were you? Uh But that was when the goodbye music, then that's when Ramsey starts rolling all his balls. And then the Onion Knight rolls his balls and then everybody's throwing chess pieces At one point, I was so worried about losing my um, uh, deposit, my, you know, sound dropped out. I couldn't even hear the rolling of the pool balls and the throwing of chess pieces. And also then the onion was like, should we throw more? Uh, Onion goes, what does that say? I don't know. And Ramsey's just watching Enchantment or Enrichment. I don't know what that says, but, uh, I mean, basically what happens is like, uh, and I was like, I'm never going to, I said, to, and I said to the manager, what if I just buy plastic chess pieces?" They said, why do I put a $500 deposit down? You know, cause so many, I said, "Just this pool balls with these." I said, Ramsey, why did you invent this game? And then he maniacally laughed, you know, cause so many chess pieces were, and then they were like stacked up, uh, never go anywhere with Ramsey Bolton. That's the simplest thing. But the table's like covered in chess pieces, so they're piled up, and Ramsey's still like throwing pool balls at chess pieces, and chess pieces at pool balls, and he's accurate. So then that's breaking stuff. So then finally he then he gets all you know retentive, and then he surrounds the chess pieces, Jon Snow's chess pieces, in the middle of the board, um. I don't know, it was some sort of new, he said he invented a new chess piece called the uh, Shieldmaster or something. And I said, well, that's the worst name for a chess piece. And he said, worse than Rook? And I said, I said, Rook's a sweet name. And he said, really? And I said, better than Shieldmaster? I said, I don't think Knight, Queen, Bishop, Pawn, Shieldmaster. I said, one of these things is doing its own thing. And he said, well, what's the problem? He said, it's two words. And I said, you could call it a shield, but I said, that's still lame. And then he said, I'm Warden, king of the north. And I said, well, not for long. And then I laughed maniacally. And I said, keep my deposit. And then I threw chess pieces up. But then Ramsey surrounded the thing. And then... I guess I kind of felt like I was in David. I felt like I was in Infinite Jest for a while, playing that uh, game, the tennis balls, and you know. But it's because I didn't. It's just like when I read that, I said, "What the hell is going on here?" And then I said, "Johnson, oh, you found the rules." He said, "Yeah, I'm losing. I'm losing. Not it's not going good. He's got me in an encirclement." And they said, "Well, we got to imagine our way out of here." So then Tormin and Carstark, they kind of did did that. Their pieces were. It was fun. And everybody said, okay, let's, you know, our horses are, you know, dancing around each other. And then John couldn't find his piece. He said, it's somewhere. And they said, how did you lose your your ball? And he said, there's so many chess pieces, I can't find my ball. And then Ramsey said, if you can't find it by the count of 10, you lose. So we're trying to find his ball. It's buried under all these chess pieces. And Ramsey's still, like, crushing all of uh, our chess pieces. I guess I was on Jon Snow's side was the other thing. And then, you know, just picture this if they did it on Game of Thrones, because they did do a remake of this game we played. So there it is. It's like, uh, let me set it back up for you, if it was happening in a physical place instead of where it really happened on a pool table. So we have all Jon Snow's pieces, and they're surrounded in this tight space. And there's chess pieces everywhere piled up, which makes it hard to move, you know, if there was, like, millions of chess pieces in your way. And they're encircled by these shield masters or whatever you want to call them, so they can't get out through the shields. And everybody's tired, and the giants are even, the giant's tired. Um... And it's hard for the giant to even reach down to a pool table, but now we're at a bat, you know field, a bat, you know a battlefield they call it. And you say, "Oh boy!" And then Tormund and Carstar, Carstar's trying to like cheat and grab Tormund's piece out of his hand. I feel like I said, I said, I swear, I feel like I'm at a freaking daycare center. And then the manager said, "Well, that's where you belong, all of you." And I said, This is John Snow, man. I said, He can go wherever he wants. But then, you know, it all looks lost. And then we hear this horn. And then uh, Tormund, you know, gets Carstarks' uh, piece away. So I say, Okay, that's good. And then we see uh, the Mockingbird banner. I think it might have just been the Veil banner with the M- Mockingbird Veil combo. I think it was because it was the Moon with the mockingbird and against the blue. And that was right when John finally, uh, like, thought he had his pieces in the position on the top of it. He'd found his chess piece, got it out, so it was at the top of the thing. Or, you know, he was at the top, I guess, in this uh, situation. He looks over at the Onion Knight and Tormund, and then the horn and it goes again, maybe, and Ramsey looks over, and he's all like, what? And then that's when it, I messed up the setup there, and that's when the Mockingbird uh armies rolls in and then yo like uh, cover your ears, kids. I already swore a few times, but it was like, yo and then that sly ass motherfucker, Littlefinger, he rolls in there and he's like, Shit, I'm sly and he and then Sansa's is like cool as a cucumber. i it was I think like uh I mean they kinda could they could be a seventies like uh lounge act now uh i mean they couldn't but i'd like to think of them because she was uh, silky smooth cool too like she was literally like a cat that ate the canary and ramsey's like huh that's not great and then we have the knights of the Vale. they're all in a cavalry so they totally start to clean up uh Like, back at the thing, what happened was actually Mockingbird's, like, uh, you can't trust him. He's split without paying the bill, but he rolled in, and what he had was one of those crumb catchers. He actually brought somebody from the restaurant, him and Sansa had dinner at, with one of those crumb things the waiters at fancy restaurants have. It looks like a piece of metal with a triangle. They use it to get the crumbs off of rich people's tables. And that was like the cavalry. He just used it to sweep all of Ramsey's pieces out of the way. And Ramsey pouted and said that wasn't a rule. And, uh, of course, Littlefinger said, there is no rules. And, pool, you know, he goes, what the hell? He goes, you're playing snooker pool chess and with bumpers. That's what I said, with bumpers. And he said, exactly, there's no rules. And then Ramsey tried to say, Well I rule, but you know, we all laughed at that. And then uh Sansa has this grin as uh, she she was even grinning there. And I said, oh, boy, look out, Cersei And then Littlefinger gave him this look like and I said, Yeah, I'm not as sly as you but uh you know, I got the bu- buffoon you know, I said, Oh no, patrick has got the buffoon thing locked down I say, I guess I have no role here, but as a narrator of this nonsense. So Sansa, Sansa has a beautiful grin, and John Cry climbs up and he's with Torment and the Giant. And Ramsay was surveying the stuff, and then everybody knew that I was going to lose the deposit. And Ramsay in particular, so he ran out first. And he's got you know, I said, You get one with the rich dad, it's like a freaking Lannister. So he runs, uh, Sansa's breathing and watching. And then John John the Giant and Torment tried to chase Ramsey down to get his part of the deposit. And then let's just use the metaphorical thing. So he runs into Winterfell, Ramsey, and locks the doors. as he says, Their army's gone. And uh, the guy says, Our army's gone. And he says that as Ramsey's walking by and Ramsey actually still is, he still can't get over his craziness. He like stops and then he kind of falls, turns back and he says, uh, we have Winterfell. They don't have the men for a sweet siege. Just lock up. We just wait them out. And the giant's like, dude, I'll just, I'm a giant and I'm not a happy giant. And, uh, you know, I bust down the door, I rumble and I pumble. It was at How can I puff and I blow your door down, Ramsey? And then really we're knocking on the car. He was in a limo. And, you know, the giant, we said, well, you know, roll down the window, pay, pay part of the deposit, man. Uh, But the giant comes in, let's go back to the Winterfell model. And the giant comes in, then John's with the giant. And then like any good bully, you know, John's exhausted. And then Ramsey's like, okay, why don't we, why don't we have like a dance off now? And John's like, I already won the game. You ran out on the deposit. And Ramsey's like, no, 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 let's let's have a dance battle now. And he's like, but we're exhausted. We chased you across the, you know, across the city. And Sansa watches, and then Ramsey, you know, he he was just he was all puff puffery anyway. So he loses the dance battle. Banners come down. Bolton banners down. Uh, Stark banners go up. Red woman's happy. Uh, she's looking at the Stark banners. They look really good. Uh, the wolf looks really good. And then the onion's holding on to Shireen, Shireen's horse and he's watching her from afar. That's a little foreshadowing, I think. And then we have Sansa and John. Sansa's like, hey, where is he? And then Sansa kind of has her day. She goes to see Ramsey. He's kind of surprised to see her at first. Ian Ramsey still tries to be himself. He says, oh, hi, Sansa. Is this where I'll be staying now? And she goes, yeah, you mean jail for running out on the bill? And he goes, oh, I guess you're know, I guess you breaking up with me. Time's come to an end. And he goes, that's all right now. You'll always love me. This is a typical, like, uh, uh, crappy high school boyfriend. You'll always—I'll be your first love, always. And she goes, "Nope, I'm a you know—I'm am I don't need you anymore." I think there's probably a song about that or a saying, "Wash a man right out of my hair," but that's not the one. I think there's one with more edge than that. Uh, she says, uh, "I think like this." She says, "Your words will disappear. Your name will disappear. Your house will disappear. All memory of you will disappear." And she's so calm. Her voice is so calm. Very like Cersei. When she says, all oh, memory of, uh, uh, you know, you will disappear. Very Cersei. And then Sansa just watches him. First, she almost walk, walks off when he starts crying, you know, oh. And then, cause then he says, you know, I did. I guess I did just, you know, ruin the pool off. She has a couple more sweet lines, but uh like she goes to leave and then she stays, and then just oh my God, more because this is so good uh, at the end she uh walks off and she strides she doesn't walk off, she strides off it is so fucking smooth, and then she gets a smile on her face uh total awesome uh said so that that was a break up. Holy moly. And that's the end of the episode. Wonderful, wonderful. And some amazing stuff, obviously, I couldn't cover. cover. Uh, but, yeah, and I, I did not get my to- deposit back or any money for Ramsey or the Mockingbird. The Mockingbird's like, he said, I'll pay you on Tuesday. And he said, could I pay you by having the uh, that kid for, the, you know, the, my king work for you, become your intern I said that one sniveling, the sniveling king, he said, he goes, you're I said, no. So that's it. We'll we'll get on to the other stuff. Okay. All right. So tonight uh, for episode four, six, we're going to talk about color money a little bit, the movie, the film, and we're going to talk about vases or vases, uh, history stuff, and then bunting and penance. A uh, penance, that uh, sounds like uh, uh, P-E-N-N-A-N-T, you know, the, the thing, I guess when you're raised Roman Catholic, it's a whole nother, so. Uh, that's what my shoulders just said, even though I said penance. I said, oh, does that mean I got to say, yeah, a shame city. Anyway, it's a silly podcast, and then hopefully it we'll was time to touch on continuity errors, even though it's not a big deal. Uh so starting with Color Money, now the reason I brought it up is because Ramsey does this thing which kinda of triggered the solution of how I was gonna talk about the uh bottom half of this episode where he's aiming and he looks away and that was uh, took place in this movie The Color of Money starring Tom Cruise and Paul Newman, Mary Stewart Master Anton Master Antonio And then it was again reenacted, even though Days and Confused technically on the timeline took place before Color Money. Like Days and Confused took place in 76. I think Color Money took place in 86. But Color Money came out in 86 or something. And then uh, Days and Confused came out in like 96, 95. Uh, but Ben Affleck also does a, the look-away-pull move where he makes a shot. Very cool. One of my, I mean, uh, Dazed and Confused, Royal Tenenbaums. And again, I don't want to get into a discussion of the quality of Dazed and Confuse. It's just one of my favorite movies of all time uh, because it just captures a moment in time. And uh, I don't know, it makes me feel good. Uh, but you know what else makes me feel good is uh, Color Money. And you know who else I love is Robert Ebert. uh <laughs> Or Roger Ebert, sorry Roger, uh, I know you're looking down at me like, uh, oh boy, or uh, you probably you're probably busy actually, uh, but I wanted to read uh, Roger Ebert's uh, October seventeenth, nineteen eighty six uh, review of The Color of Money. We'll uh, just quote from it and we'll talk more. If this movie had been directed by somebody else, I might have thought differently. Because uh, I would, might not have expected as much. This is paraphrasing. Color Money is directed by Martin Scorsese. Scorsese, uh, The most exciting American director now working. And it's not an exciting film. It doesn't have electricity, wound up tension of his best work. And I was too aware of the story marching by. Now, uh, Ebert goes on to say, Scorsese may have thought of this film as deliberately mainstream, a conventional film with big names and a popular subject matter. And maybe he did it for that reason. This is a paraphrase. Uh, but, But Ebert believes he still has the stubborn soul of an artist and cannot put his heart where his heart will not go. Wow. Ebert is good, man. In his heart, I believe, inclines toward creating new and completely personal stories about characters who have come to life in his imagination and not finishing someone else's story. Uh, the Color Money is not a sequel, exactly. It didn't start with someone's fresh inspiration. It continues the story of Fast Eddie Felsen, a character played by Paul Newman, and Robert Rawson's The Hustler from 1961. Uh, 25 years later, Eddie still plays pool, but not for money and not high-stakes games. He's a liquor salesman, a successful one. And one night he sees a kid playing pool, and that kid is so good it stirs Eddie up. And that kid is uh, Vince, played by uh, Tom Cruise. Or maybe, is that his name? I know he has a shirt called Vince, I think. And the, a lot of this talks about the plot, which I don't want to dig into too much yet. Uh, but here comes, this is later in the article, uh, here we come to the big weakness of the color money. exists in a couple of time-worn genres, and its story is generated out of standard Hollywood situations. Uh, old pro and the talented youngster, uh, the kid who wants to take the master off the throne, and many scenes are almost formula, despite the energy of Scorsese's direction and perform good performances. Uh, they come in the same places we would expect them to come in a movie by anybody else at the same events. Everything eventually points to the ending of the film, which we know will have to be a showdown between Eddie and Vince, between Newman and Cruz. And the fact that this isn't a just a big payoff scene is a disappointment. Uh, And then uh, uh, Ebert speculates Does Scorsese think the movie was about the personalities of the two heroes and that was unnecessary to show them, like, who would win in a showdown, Uh, perhaps. But then why plot the whole story with genre formulas only to bail out at the end. And then he talks about a famous metaphor. Yeah, uh, the side stories are where the movie really lives. There's a the warm bitter sleep relationship between Newman and his long term girlfriend played by Helen Shaver. And the greatest energies between Cruz and Master Trent Master Trump, Master Trantonio. Master Trantonio. Uh and the greatest energy in the story is generated between them. I think I already said that, uh, With her hard edge and cynicism and the fact that Caruso can't feel like he lets his guard down with her. Uh, Watching Newman is always interesting in this movie. He's been a true star for many years, but sometimes that quality has been thrown away. Uh, But Scuric is kind of director who lets the camera stay on an actor's face and looks deeply into them and tries to find the shadings that have revealed originality. In many of New- New- Newman's close-ups in this movie shows an enormous power, concentration, and focus of his essence as an actor. Okay, so there's some reason I lost that sight there, but there's another, a couple other great articles. Here's one uh, from Mental Floss, uh, from Roger Cormier, and it's uh, 17 bankable facts about the color of money. I don't see a date on this, but, you know, Paul Newman to ask her for a second go-around if it's uh, Eddie Felsen, Fast Eddie. Uh, and it was Paul Newman uh, who approached Martin Scorsese about the film. Uh, Walter Tevis had written the book to Hustler and the sequel to Color Money. Newman didn't care for the adapted screenplay, so he went to Scorsese because he was a fan of Raging Bull and wanted a similar tone for a color of money. Uh, Newman drove the screenwriter crazy. Richard Price, oh, the famous Richard Price, the great uh, novelist, uh, was brought on to work with New- Newman and Scorsese on the screenplay, which would feature his own interpretation of what happened to Fast Daddy. Price would work on a scene, then give it to Scorsese. He would read it and give him notes. Then Price would rework the scenes and submit them to Newman, who would give his own notes. Uh, And I guess Newman wasn't easy to uh, deal with. Uh, 20th Century Fox did not want Paul Newman or Tom Cruise. Uh, Fox was enthusiastic until Sherry Lansing left the theater, and then the new bosses didn't like the script or its leads. Columbia passed. And Touchstone, Disney, Eisner and Katzenberg at Touchstone Disney saw the potential and green greenlit it. Uh, Scorsese and Newman risked some of their salaries because they did a fifty-day shooting schedule, fourteen point five million budget, and they worked at a deal where if the movie went over budget, uh, Newman and Scorsese would have to make up the difference. Uh, with one-third of their salaries each at risk, uh, and they actually did shoot one extra day. Oh, no, they finished one day early and $1.5 million under budget. Uh, Jackie Gleason, who played Minnesota Fats in Minnesota The Hustler, passed on returning to the movie. Uh, and they said it was kind of like they were trying to stick him in anyway. Uh, and so Gleason was like, forget it. Uh, The character Janelle, uh, played by Alan Shaver, that's uh, Eddie's love interest, uh, was added uh, at the last minute. Oh, so that he wouldn't look like he was in love with Tom Cruise. Oh, interesting. Uh, John Turturro's agent didn't want him in the film uh, because he didn't get played what he felt like he was worth, played Julian, but he took the job anyway. Uh, during the production, he showed his screenplay for Mac to Scorsese, who was, gave him some advice, and that got it became a movie in 1992. Uh, Master Antonio, Mary Stewart, Master Antonio was the last person to audition for the character of Carmen. Uh, Cruz and Newman had met before, after Newman had saw Cruz and Taps, and uh, he said, uh, he said, hey, killer. And, uh, I don't know, I never said, I don't know if I've seen the movie Taps. And Newman called Cruz only by his last name on set. Uh, they didn't have time for Cruz to learn every pool shot. Uh, he played a lot of pool and he improved 200% over a few weeks time and he performed all the pool stunts except for the one where he jumps two balls for a shot. Because uh, they just didn't have the time or the money uh Scorsese does the uh voice on opening credits uh top pool players in one stooge appeal- appeared in the film. A famous pool player Steve Mazerak uh portrayed a opponent one of Eddie's opponents, Jimmy Mattaya, known as pretty boy P- Floyd played a uh, a uh, Julian's friend in the green room. Keith McCready played Grady Seasons, and Iggy Pop was in it. Wow, as a pool player, that's cool. Uh, They weren't actually using a famous cue, the Balabushka. It was actually another pool cue. Uh, Scorsese, according to us, got the idea for Goodfellas while shooting Color Money during some downtime. He read a review of Nicholas Pelleggi's Wise Guy while he was directing the Color Money. And it said something about this character, Henry Hill, having access to all these uh, levels of organized crime because he was an outsider. And he really got interested in then, became fascinated by the possibilities. Uh, David Gaffin was upset over the contract. Robbie Robertson put it together, which has uh, Robertson and Eric Lapton and, and the way that you use it in Warren Zevon's Werewolves of London. Uh, but uh, I don't know. There was just some disagreements. There's also a bunch of other '80s bands there. Increase in pool. Increase in pool interest followed the film's release, twenty-five percent. And the video game uh, Doom got its name from the film. Uh, Id Software found the perfect title for the first-person shooter classic from the scene between Vincent and Marcel. Uh, played by Bruce A. Young. When Vincent asked what's in his pool case, he says, here. And then he opened this case, and he said the one-word response, doom. And there's a couple other articles. There's also this great, Forrest Whitaker's really good in it. Uh, so it's Color Money. Check it out. I'm sure it's streaming somewhere. Uh, next up, you know, Khaleesi had a lot of vases or vases for decoration in the uh, temple there. Or the pyramid, and I said, "Geez, I'd like to learn a little bit more about vases and vases and stuff." So I looked up, and this uh, this came up on uh, HistoryWorld.net. History of pottery and porcelain. In uh, let's see, to pottery, that's about archaeological ar- archaeological evidence, uh, with, for, 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 together with examples of primitive tribes in recent times. Shows the earliest containers used by Neolithic man ranged from hollowed-out pieces of stone or wood to animal skin, and above all, baskets. Uh, almost every region of the world has uh, suitable materials in grasses, reeds, and willows uh, to make baskets, but they're not good for liquids. This is paraphrasing. Uh, for that, for liquids, another thing that's widely available, cheap, and light compared to stone is clay. Now, not all societies have developed the use of craft of potteries. Nomads tended not to be potters uh, because of the technical demands of life on the move, and they're fragile. And also, where nature provides uh, pots in the form of gourds, they didn't need to either. Uh, but most communities tending their props to crops, uh, I give them props, uh, during the Neolithic Revolution, uh, discovered the technique and use of pottery uh, with one remarkable exception, in the Czech Republic, uh, uh, most of the earliest examples come from the Middle East where our, our, our agriculture uh, first developed uh, 6500 B.C. in Turkey. Uh, Katol Hurok, uh, Hiro, 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 uh that was made by primitive potters rings of coil or clay built up from a circular base uh normally neolithic, neolithic pottery was undecorated in 3000 BC uh it couldn't you know it couldn't be per- perfectly round till they invented the potter's wheel which was a crucial factor in the history of ceramics uh doesn't know exactly where it was introduced uh but it developed gradually from a platform on which the potter turns the pot uh, before shaping another side without having to walk around. Uh, But around 3000 BC, they found some in Mesopotamia, a cradle of so many innovations. Then Greek vases in the 6th and 5th century, uh, the Greeks had um, uh, started to develop a more sophisticated tradition and more of the vases of uh, surviving in numbers. 550 to 480 B.C., the potters of Athens and Attica were the most accomplished, and they had decorative style known as the black figure vases and the subsequent red figure technique. In the 6th century, it was attractive warm color that could be given to the undecorated service of the pot by adding red ochre to the clay. Uh, by the mid-6th century, there's vase painters that could decorate the surface of pots with figurative seams from mythology uh, by mixing things before the vase was fired. Uh, the painters became very prolific. And, you know, the, the, the Greek vases were essentially practical objects, uh, more than a dozen shapes, each with a specific purpose for wine, olive oil, or other urgents, heating and or cooling liquids, pouring or drinking. And their makers are craftsmen, you know, potters or vase painters, uh they they didn't have the same prestige as painters and sculptors. Oh wow, that's interesting. So uh but this it, it, it is so significant by the sixth century that they started getting credit on uh on their pots. Uh, most famous painter was uh, ergo Ergotimos, Ergotimos, calitas painted me, I think. Uh, oh, Ergotimos made me, kalitas but uh, painted me. In the night of the first century BC, we started with glazed ceramics and uh, Mesopotamia and Egypt onwards. Uh... And then Greek ceramics in the 6th and 5th century. Uh, Technically, all these pots suffer from a major disadvantage. Fired earthenware is tough, but it's porous, so liquid can eventually leak through. I mean, in cooling, that's good, but it's less appropriate for storing wine or milk. So then they added a glaze, which was a technological breakthrough in Mesopotamia, originally used for tiles. Uh, which, you know, before getting fired in the kiln, you know, they had some that made a glassy skin impermeable. And they could also be used, again, for decorative quality. So that's interesting. Then we had African terracotta figures uh, from the 5th century B.C., longest surviving tradition of African sculpture or figures in terracotta. Uh, cast metal is the only other material that could withstand the continent's termites. Uh, uh, West Africa and Nigeria had the richest uh, sequence of terracotta figures. Uh, they date back two and a half millennia. And terracotta heads and figures have been found in Ife, dating from the 12th to 15th century, and Gennais. And they found uh, slowly in Mali re-unearthing re- superb terracottas from the same period. And then they had uh, Chinese pottery in the 7th and ninth century, which is a little bit different than the had. Then the Islamic pottery from the 9th to 12th century. Then the Song Dynasty from the 10th to the 13th century. And then Japanese pottery in the tea ceremony from the 13th and 16th centuries. Uh, Korean in the 1500s. And then some more porcelain in Japan. And then we get into the European Renaissance. And then the European quest for, you know, stealing stuff, porcelain and uh, porcelain prisoner. So there's a lot more here. And it looks like historyworld.net. Everything is written by Bamber Gascione. Uh So, and I'll link to it in the show notes, but that's historyworld.net. It's a little bit about uh, uh, vases and vases and pottery. And then in this episode, you know, there's a lot of banners and the banners going up and banners going down last two episodes. And I saw it about, uh, those triangle pennants, a p n n and I said I started trying to Google that, and bunting came up. I said, "Oh, that's interesting." This is from Innovate, uh dot net. Uh, what is bunting? Uh, because the patriotic uh, things are coming up in the warmer months, summertime's perfect to celebrate any memorial. Whether a party or a picnic, but just as nice of as a touch have some bunting on hand. And what's the history of bunting? It's an antique uh, type of thin fabric of worsted uh, parallel weave wool uh, that was used in the creation of flags for the Royal British Navy. Fabric was a popular choice. Actually, it looked like it was wool, those banners, possibly, too, uh, because it was lightweight but dense so it could catch the breeze. In uh, parallel weave, contributed to the strength of the flags and the ability to wave with grace and undulated motion. That's nice, undulated motion. Uh, today, bunting's a much more generic term to provide or describe ornamentation, meant to look like decorative fabric, although it might not be fabric, uh, like uh, brightly colored plastic triangles. How's bunting prepared? Usually draped in the national colors. Is a more common meaning. Uh, it could be made of anything. It could be shapes of triangles, rolls, pennants, miniature flags, pleated fans of uh, sticks, towels, skirts, and rugs. It could be a duplication of a flag uh, or any flag you wish. Some bunting comes in plain colors. Patriotic bunting of doors, uh, porches, and railings of people's houses. And some patriots uh, put their bunting, at, they'll, they'll, I bunt it 365 days a year, they say. Those are the people that eat Freedom Prize, that too. And then there's a little more over on Wikipedia. Bunting or bunt is a worshipable fabric, just like we said, uh, for ribbons or flags from the Royal Navy, including signal flags. Uh, the term bunting is used to refer to a collection of flags, particularly those of a ship the officer responsible for raising the signal flags was known as bunts. And that's a term still used for the communications officer. Uh, But then I knew there's a thing called the pennant. That's at Wikipedia, too, for sports. A commemorative flag used to show support for an athletic team. And then kids in the 50s had these on their walls. I think even, I think sometimes... Even I've seen them before, people might have, but high school, collegiate, professional, the pennants were made of felt and uh, fashion colors of a particular team. Often uh, graphics uh, of the team name were on there, and the images displayed on it uh, were stitched on or could be screen printed. And today, Uh, Vintage pennants with rare images or special victories or prized collectibles or souvenirs from vacation spots. Uh, In Major League Baseball, it was the flag flown specifically for the American or National League championship teams of any given season or such a championship itself. In the last few weeks of American baseball season, are known as the pennant race. In Australian sports, the term "team" the term "flag" is used in the same context. The pennant is waved around the crowd to show support the team they're cheering for. Uh, so, it's just a little bit about uh, uh, pennants and bunting. And then this article on Rolling Stone is from uh, September eighteenth, twenty thirteen. Doesn't have an author that I can see, um, but it's just 10 ridiculous movie mistakes. Uh, virtually every movie, even a good one, can have continuity errors or factual inaccuracies. But here's some big ones Independence Day, which is getting relaunched this year, came out in 96 during David's tirade in Area 51. Uh, where he's talking about the fate of the planet. That's Jeff Goldblum, who plays David. And Deforestation, he drunkenly knocks over a bin that says Art Department. Either the top-secret installation had its own designers, or a set-dresser accidentally left his garbage can behind. In 1985 film that comes up in this show, The Goonies... uh, at the end of the film, data tells reporters that the scariest part of the adventure was dealing with a giant octopus. So he always thought he was lying, but, uh, I guess that scene was der- deleted, uh, and it, got, it didn't it got, when the Disney channel would show it in the nineties, they put it back in. Was it better off with that scene? Probably. Uh, they say now our former governor out here was in a movie called Commando 1985 with, uh, who is that on Who's the Boss? Uh it'll come to me. She was Uncharmed. Uh it hasn't come to me yet, but in Commando nineteen five it was a commercial success that established Arnold Schwarzenegger as an action hero. Uh, but the film has so many mistakes we've lost count. There's a Porsche that was damaged that it fixes itself from one scene to another. Uh, How about the movie Gladiator, 2000, during the uh, acting in Carthage? A chariot flips over and you can see a gas canister on the back, and uh, they didn't have gas in back in Roman times. How about the 1995 film Braveheart? Uh, There's plenty of flubs here, uh, from crew members caught on camera to floppy rubber weapons. Also, a white van appears during one battle scene. Never seen any of this. And if you look in uh, one scene with the Pikemen, oh, I guess you that's where the van shows up, a Ford, Ford Transit van. Uh, how about Pulp Fiction, 1994, when Jules and Vincent are in the apartment? If you look behind them, you'll see the holes are already in the wall before anything has happened where Jules goes back and looks at the holes after. Uh, How about the classic Hitchcock, North by Northwest, 1959? Uh, It has a classic gaffe where a boy boy covers his ears moments before a uh, sound effect in Mount Mount Rushmore. (laughs) Uh, Critics knew the boy was exactly new because he had been in so many previous takes and he didn't like the sound. Uh, How about Jurassic Park, 1993, when, uh, what's that guy's name? Hello, Newman, Newman, uh, Dennis Nedry's chatting with an accomplished and a live, Skyping with him, but the workstation shows he's, uh, talking to a pre-recorded video. I don't understand that, but, uh, how about Django Unchained in 2012, uh, it was sent in Annabelum, 1858. Uh, but the uh, character wears a nifty pair of sunglasses throughout the film. They had been around since the 12th century because they were invented in China, but they didn't get to the U.S. until 1929. Uh, when, and they were first sold by Sam Foster at Woolworths on Atlantic City Boardwalk. But no one's going to mess with Django. And how about T3, Rise of the Machines, a uh, third entry, as uh, teeming with airs, they say. One of the most notable giveaways is when uh, uh, John Connor's uh, Cessna 172 Skyhawk, uh, the number changes on it. Oh, boy, you're busted. <laughs> uh, so that's a little bit about continuity. Here's a little bit of fun there. And that's it for uh, tonight's facts. And that, Tommen, is why I don't wear pants with zippers. Oh, Padman. Oh, oh. You are so witty, Padman. Hey, did I, I, was that good acting? Yeah, it is. Hey, we blew it. Oh, Padman, that was, Sir Pounce, what did you think of Padman's fake conversation opener? Yeah, man. Yes, uh, okay, but wait, wait, wait a second, Padman. Wait. Who made zippers? A bad man must have made zippers, this XYZ person. I mean, why would they put a zipper there if they... You know what I mean? This is a bad man. We should put him on a pike. Is he still existing? I don't know, Tom, Tom, and I mean, probably his, his like, uh, probably similar to you, his children are enjoying the benefits of the zipper, zipper fame and fortune. Uh, well, we should punish them. Well, actually, we got to do our show, so, um... Yeah, that was. So did you think that opening was funny, Batman? It was sad. You, you know, you know. I, we just we've talked about this so many times. I don't know, if so would it? That's a minute. Yes, you don't get it, Batman. Uh, we mean we need to move on. We've discussed this discussed this enough. It was an attempt to be funny. And I preserved it with throwing it to Sapounce. That's usually my tactic with you. You may have not noticed because of things, but you do have a brain of a, pot, a sleepy pod man. So sometimes I go to Sapounce. So I'm talking, then Sapounce is talking, then I'm recycling. And then your brain has a little chance uh, to figure, you know, to get going. You know, the blue, I I I don't like to uh, speculate. See, uh, see, Padman, Mr. I'm, Pounce, what do you think about the use of that word? I don't mean. Yes, uh, I didn't. I don't think I learned it from the Smelly Maester. No, uh, but he probably he would say speculate, but speculate. Uh. Well, Podman, I think you and the blue-faced man. Like, see, Sir Gregor, the real Sir Gregor, real-life IRL Gregor, the Gregor, he is, you know, he is, you know, simply nice. Uh The blue-faced man, he is, you know, simply, you know, but, but you, so I think you two are similar in some ways. You know, your brains are, you know, moving slowly. Okay, but we got to get to speaking and moving slowly. We got to get to your adventure. Well, also, I'm buying time because it's clear you're not ready for the adventure. Yeah, but we might, uh, might as well start it anyway. Oh, okay, okay, re, okay. Sapounce, so are you ready? Smattering. A smattering of ready, Sapounce so says, men, Okay, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we interrupt your regularly special program. For another, uh, to welcome you to K-Pounce Radio. Uh, Radio of Best Friendship and Bravery. Radio founded by a boy and his cat. Uh, K-Pounce, where radio friendship lives on the airwaves forever. Boys and cats alike. And and other people are welcome. It's just, it's just the, the, the tagline, you know. If you're not a boy or a cat, you're welcome, too. Uh... Okay, Pounce Radio. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Our voices are getting too close. Our radio voices are too close, Simon. Okay, we'll be creative. It's too late. Just go, please. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, uh, welcome to another episode of Tom and Pounce in the Road to Self Discovery. Our adventurers, Tom and Pounce have battled many things on the road to the deepest, darkest heart of the Temple of self discovery and as they've gone through adventure and adventure and learning more and probing deeper, they face the greatest challenge yet tonight. For, as our episode opens, both Tom and Pounce are in the clutches of the evil Mistress of Vines. She has them captured. Deep within the temple. And will our heroes, Tommen and Pounce, escape as the wrists and the, you know, they're covered in vines by the Queen? Uh, okay, I'll take it. Oh, we're covered in vines, Sir Pounce. Uh, the Queen of, the Mistress of Vines has us. Uh, Sir Pounce, uh, how are you doing? Distressing, mean. You're stressing, huh? Yes, uh, "'Well, I'm just wondering, where's Zero? Uh, "'Queen of v- Mistress of Vines, where, where is it, Z- my friend, Zero? "'Hey, said, hello, Tommen. "'I am the Mistress of Vines. "'All oh, the vines, all the time. "'We reach towards the light from the dark of the earth. "'Oh, Tammin, I have you trapped now within my vines.' But the vines we reach, we crawl, we go towards the light from the earth, we use what we okay. Just uh, excuse me, Queen of Vines, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I'm missing my friend Zero. Have you seen my friend Zero? Ah, uh, your friend Zero, I don't remember him. <laughs> oh, that's funny, no one does. He's actually the bad man in disguise, but we call him Zero. Because because that's exactly right, Queen Vines. It's Mistress of the Vines. Oh, yes, sir. Uh, but, you know, really, where is Zero? I mean, I know you don't remember him, but you must have encountered him. We were together. And then, uh, oh, wait a second. Uh, sir Pounce, where, where, where was the last thing you remember? Sir Pounce? Actually, uh, where's Sir Pounce? "'Your friend has gone away, Tommen.' "'What have you you done with, Sir Pounce? "'I will free myself from—' "'Well, these vines are very—' "'It's interesting. "'The bark on the vines uh, makes it hard to escape. "'You have me in your clutches, I believe, uh, Mistress of Vines.' "'Yes, I do, Sir Tommen, and the more you try to fight, "'the more tangled you will become.' Okay, well, uh, what exactly do you, would you so where where's the pounce really? No, just tell me where the pounce is, because what do, you find you just eat light. I we it was explained to me one time. The uh, Maester, I said, what do plants eat? Because uh, uh, Joff told me what they, he said they eat little brothers the plants. And he told me of these plants, and it made me you know for a while when I was a boy i i did not like i avoided all plants and of course, then i was he you know he he was he was my brother though mistress of vines, and Sir pounce is my best friend and uh, but I avoided plants for a long time until the maester the blubbering meester, the one that smells like um, um, spoiled milk, he said to me. Oh, plants eat the light in the air. And I said, you are a fool, just like Mother says. And he said, well, i fool. But then he tried to explain. And then this other maester, it was a time when this nice maester, young maester, he was a maester in training from the Citadel. And I said to him, you know, he told me, "Explain to me exactly how the plants eat water, light, and air. And nutrients from the ground. They're friends with. Uh, are you friends with any worms, uh, mistress of vines? Your talking is only tangling things more. Well, I'm not threatened, for I know you could, would not eat a cat unless you're that one plant. Uh, you're not that. That's not a vine. It was. Uh, Joff told me about the plants. That would. But I think it was a lie, just like all the other lies, my dear. Did you like that, Uh, mistress? I could teach you a thing or two about uh, mistressing. Oh, you could teach me a thing or two about mistressing, could you, Tommen? Well, I could teach you a thing or two about this temple, for this temple is my temple, Tommen. And you have come in here, and over the years I have spread my roots in my vines throughout this temple, throughout this house, and everything that goes on here I've had an influence in, whether it's Zero meeting up with you, or Sir Gregor, or all your other little adventures. All's I would have had to do was move some vines to change your path. Everything I've done's led you to me, Sir Tommen. And so, that is where we find ourselves. You are deep within my temple by my choice. Your road to self-discovery has merely been me testing you to see if you were worthy. All these players in this game were there to see if you could assist the Mistress of vine, So I may have some mistressing for you to do, but not of a sort of teaching. Okay, I stopped listening after a little bit. Uh, you said this is your play, this is your temple. You're in control. Actually, I think I followed the whole thing. You were just uh, a bit like zero going on and on. This is your temple, this is your place, you're in charge, you are in control of everything. The subtle touch of a vine has controlled all the events of my life, is that what you're saying? Yes, but I worry that you're starting to think a little bit too independently, Tarman, And that's why I wanted to get you alone, for I think I need your help to continue my work without you. And your influence, mine, is merely confined to this temple. But together, Sertamen, we could conquer so much more, and no one would know that it was my hand guiding things. For I've observed you, and you are a unique boy. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Some would say other words other than unique. They have said those things about me. But that is a nice way to put it, thank you. All you would need to do on this journey of self-discoveries is take me with you, few pieces of me. Bring me to your castle, and I could spread my influence there. Because I can tell you're afraid, Tommen, and you need someone, a little vine, to see you. watch, I can even tickle you with my vine, watch. Oh, that does tickle, but I don't like it either. It's a vine. It's not a human hand. As the tail is soft, your vine is weird. So please don't tickle. Yes, it's a gross tickle. Please don't tickle me. Okay, but I could, you know, subtly help you and influence you. On your quest to run your castle and your sept. For a while you have journeyed down the road of self-discovery," said Tom, "and I'm not sure you're quite ready to journey outside of the temple all alone." Okay, well, I'm not all alone. First of all, I've Pounce. Second of all, I've met the Gregor and Ray, the very nice, and then Zero, the Padman. He is like a—he's uh, like a well that I yelled down into—an empty well. And then I hear my own voice come back to me. And I yell down there, Tommen. And I says, Tommen. And then I laugh. There's my voice in there. There's Sir Pounce yelling the well. And Sir Pounce says, meh, it's meh, man uh, But I'm not clear on what you want, Mistress of Vines. You want me to take you to the Red Keep, is what you're saying, so you could spread around there. And basically, you would be in charge, but I would look like I'm in charge, huh? "'Is that your plan?' "'Exactly. Uh, "'You would be in charge, and I would be helping you be in charge. "'It was more exactly what I meant, Sir Tommen. "'And why would I want that exactly? "'I have a best friend, Sir Pounce. "'He's the bravest cat bravery's ever known. "'I have uh, learned to make friends uh, just on this journey.' So I could make more friends outside of this temple, I believe, and then I have servants like the the part like Zero, who uh, who lived with the joy of serving me, and you know their life takes meaning by serving me, where you seem to say, I'm not capable of leading, or be, or being in charge of anything. "'That's—well, no, Sir Tommen, it sounds like there's some doubt in your voice, "'and I doubt you'll ever find your cat again. "'Or Zero. "'Or Ray or the Gregor. "'Even if you find your way out of here. "'Okay, is, is that—you're saying you won't give me Sir bounce back unless what?' "'Unless you agree to take me with you back to the Red Keep.' "'Okay, well, this is—I wish Sir Pounce was here so I could comment on how bad your strategy is, Lady Vines. "'Okay, I'll tell you what. I'll take you back to the Red Keep. "'If you give me one good reason—I I don't think you could handle Sir Pounce, uh, "'For one. "'And for two, why would I need you? I don't need your help. I can do things on my own. "'I am a big boy now.' "'Oh, really?' You can do things on your own now. Ah, uh, Yes, that's what, that's what I just said. Did you not believe me because I shout in wells as a hobby? Yes, I don't believe you. That's why I'm taking this passive tone, which should say everything. Well, I guess we're done here, Sir, Sir Tom and say uh, It was too bad you didn't have a chance to say goodbye to your cat. Your cat will become one with the vines and... Uh, I guess you could continue on your adventure, or you could just go home and get back in your bed. Or you could rule the kingdom with a vine at your back, your cat in your bed, and you could do all those wonderful things you just say. You just need a little extra help. I don't know why you're so reactionary. I just want to help you. I think we're having a miscommunication. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, let, let's just cut this out, okay? I've been on the journey to self-discovery enough to almost figure out what this is about. And believe it or not, sometimes when the earphones aren't on and we're not recording, the pod man says, Tom, do you think you have a gut? And then we laugh, you know, in a funny way, I say, oh, I've got a gut like a claws. You're Klaus Kringle. Oh, ho, oh, oh, ho, oh. And then we, you know, we even surpass laugh at that. And I love being Klaus Kringle, bringing the children presents. You know, for the children of Westeros, I bring them, I pretend I bring them water. I dump it on the, you know, the seps and I say, there's some water. Happy Christmas. Klaus Kringle. Ho, oh, oh, ho, oh. ho. Uh, but, uh, what was my point? Uh, I don't think. Oh, Podman said, Do you have. Can you have a. Find your gut, Tommen? And for a while, I said, uh, You know, because he's a, he's a broken man, that Podman. I know that term gets thrown around a lot, but he is. And he said, The woe that has become him. That's how he became zero, from not trusting his gut. He said, uh, This is private stuff, uh, Lady Vine. But, uh, he said, maybe one day, and you could find your gut and listen. And I said, it's saying, Podman, Podman. It is so funny when I do that. It's Klaus Kringle's gut. Do you get that? Lady Vine, do you believe in the Klaus Kringle? Oh, Sir and you don't need my help at all. Well, that's exactly what my gut's telling me. My gut is telling me. That you are tentacles. I know you think, oh, I love Capelina, So I'm going to be easy mark uh, for your games. Well, it's not uh, easy mark, Lady Vine. I'm not going to just roll over and say, oh, I I give up. Uh, uh, No, I will. uh, uh, What are my other options? Because I say no to you. Well then you must bat you'll never escape my temple. I'm going to crumble the temple with on you or I just won't ever free you. Oh so you don't really have a thought out plan. How you how would you help me uh, if you can't even figure out how to defeat me <laughs> Lady Vine You may have me trapped uh, uh but you know I guess I would probably you know but I do love my subhounds, uh, so I, was, I just wonder if we could make some sort of uh, negotiation, you know. Because yes, I am not the perfect leader, and I see you want to leave the temple here and spread your influence. And you want to do it in the most powerful kingdom with the most powerful family, the most powerful boy, the most powerful cat, and I'll tell you. I, I mean, I know of other castles I could bring you to. What if I started bringing you to more and more castles, and then? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we're just going to have to do battle, uh, uh, Lady Vines. But I guess I'm. Oh, you're pulling me tighter. How will I ever? Oh, you're you're lowering. Oh, you're pulling me tighter, and oh, the, the oh no, this is filling up with water here. Well, will I escape? I don't know, Lady Vines. Is this your plan to keep me here? It is, said Tommen. Okay, well, I will escape, so, but I guess we will wait till next week to do so. But I won't have your influence on me, for my gut says no. Tommen and Klaus Kringle's gut says, Oh, 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 Hold oh, oh, that, that man, too, would make me... So, no, no, no. Okay, so that is it. Uh, Thank you, Lady Vines. I'll deal with you next week. And thank you for joining us, boys and girls, on another adventure on K-Pounce Radio with Tommen and Sir Pounce. Take it, Padman. Will our heroes escape the clutches? Where is Sir Pounce? Where is Zero? No one cares about Zero. Where is it? Will Tommen escape the clutches of the Lady Mistress of Vines? What fate awaits our heroes? Find out next week on K-Pounce Radio. Radio best friendship. Okay, bad man, I'm, I'm exhausted. That was just very, uh, you know, what is the difference? Is there something other than your gut? Because I'm free, whatever that was, uh, it reminded me of, uh, oh, stressing me out. I need to lie down in the, oh yeah, it's fine to get in a fetal position, Tom, and, you had a venture. Okay, good. So my good can get tired too. Yeah. Do you want a candy cane? Cause you did such a good good, good job playing Claus Kringle. Oh, do you have fresh candy canes? I have some that Klaus Kringle forgot to bring with him six six or eighteen months, nineteen, plus twelve, thirty months ago or so. Oh, excellent. And do you have any for, for Pounce? No, no, no. He can't have. Okay, thank you. Okay, okay. So that's it. Thanks, Tom, and thanks everybody. Uh, Crone, sweet, sweet Crone, Miller, Smith, Barky, Jester, Hound Dog, God. Uh, you know, it's, uh, let's just if, let's just pretend that you know, Hound Dog, God. Uh, this is your fallible, uh, uh, prayer, calling, praying in uh, to continue our adventures. As the as, as former residents of the Goondocks, the team that uh, set out on a quest so that Mar—you know—that Martha Plimpton as my what is that word called—proxy or paroxy uh could learn more about herself and find the tools she needs to grow outside the Goondocks to help Mikey in this, you know, this, this prayer based saga, uh, to be the best sister that she suddenly became the middle sister of Mikey and Bran or Brant, Brand, Brant, Brand. still haven't had the time to look that up guys, you know, cause I'm only, you know, I don't have a divine power, even though I don't have, you know, I guess I could have looked it up on IMDB or something. But you know see jeez how about how about a little divine intervention over here, just for the characters name, but you know I know lo you know lo and behold the power of the gods is great and mysterious uh in compl- and, and you, I can see you gods sitting around your fancy table table in lane with you know- human misery maybe Sorry, sorry God's getting a little passive aggressive but uh. Saying, and lo and behold, Scooter will complain about the mysterious every season, multiple times a season. Scooter complains about our mysterious ways. You say, hey, Jester, check that off on the checklist. Scooter, com- well, he already did it this season, Crone. You should have known that. Uh, but anyway, guys, we are at the essential moment of this moment together as we've traveled as the Goonies. Uh, fratelli's in pursuit uh martha plimpton did i say martha stewart before god's uh sorry about that i don't mean to confuse you it's martha plimpton in this case i mean i just get i guess i just see you say what was her character's name i say well Jesus, i don't know like uh you can't can't you even you know add some notes to my notes every once in a while and they say, "Well, which, how come there's not an arts god?" And and anyway, not to go off topic, but serious, like, uh, which one of the gods in Westeros is in charge of the arts? Jester, is you? I guess that would be you. And since you're just busy, you know, see, who repre- I guess it would be the baker, or the miller, or the smith would be more. I mean, no offense, Jester, you represent the lure of the arts. And maybe the pay, like the uh, like the audience of the arts, but the uh, the hard work. I guess the, sorry about that, Miller and uh, Smith. Yeah, I guess you are the arts gods, the craft side, the rigor side. Man, I guess I shouldn't have been. Uh, dis- I haven't been disrespecting you. Anyway, here we we reach the bottom of the water slide. We are submerged in the water, which may represent our subconscious. But I'm saying, well, you're you know, all knowing. You don't need to worry about your subconscious. Uh, but I do, because as I rise out of the water, I see a ship in front of me. And you know what that ship represents to me and Mikey, at least? Uh, even Brian, as we cheer together to say, Yay, gods, we did it. That's one eyed Willie's ship. And that's where the gold, gold is, I think. Was that what we were coming here for? One-head willy's gold, right? Yeah. And so we make our way to the ship. First, we look at the cavernous. That set was amazing, too, By in the movie gods. Have you watched Goonies yet? I guess you're probably asking that. You say, Scooter, I thought you saw Goonies 35 times when you were in uh, late grammar school. Weren't you paying attention to Martha? And I say, well, you I got this brain that doesn't record everything like it's supposed to. So sorry, yeah, no, I don't know. And yeah, but but anyway, so we let's make our way. We we bask in the great setting of the ship. What could more clear or represent the certainty we've been seeking, gods? Uh the ability to to save the goondacks, to save our parents, to give us, you know, say, geez, let's finally quell those feelings deep inside my Plimpton-esque heart that are so stirred up that say, oh, boy, oh, boy. I, and I, I can, and I I can't exactly identify, but I can relate with uh, what my character at this stage of her life is going through. We say, "Well, change is afoot," and I'm not sure about all this change that's afoot. Well, let's we we go through the water, joy on our faces, victory, all seems so well. And we, we enter the ship and, and that is where we discover, uh, what we've been looking for with we, 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 a representation. You see the ship, ship was maybe a symbol or an encasement. I'm not sure. You see. well, that's the vehicle of our certainty or something. And you say, okay, well, yeah. So, uh. And but but oh within the ship, oh, lo, we enter it, uh, and we discover the actual uh, physical embodiment of certainty, rich stuff, as uh, Mikey would say, or Malt, the rich stuff, gold, uh, gems. Maybe data said that and ball you know bars like all out of the like that book i used to check out to the grammar school library about pirates over and over again the, bloom, the blooms or doubloons, probably and of course one-eyed willie an actual mystery uh, gods one-eyed willie does have one eye we learned uh in a mystery that i'm not sure like like was it a mystery of greed? I guess I see that again, I think that might have been the lesson of the movie Gods, lesson one, that I wasn't like even Mikey has to take a, a breath from his aspirator or his inhale or whatever you call it, gods. And at this point I see Mikey's jean jacket buttoned up. I see, Mikey, you're looking you're looking sharp. Uh you know, you're our leader. But you're, you know, not in this case. So I say, well, then I'd have to push him out of the way. And as we greedily grab for the certainty gods, you know, uh, right? They say, oh boy, let me fill up my pockets. That's what I would be doing. You know, let's be honest. I guess I'm not Mike, you guys. I'm only scoots playing, you know, with poor, Mar- I guess, poor Martha, Martha Plimpton, Has to be, you know, my proxy. So she, and she wasn't really dressed for stuffing things with, uh, she just had a t-shirt and jeans on, I think. But if I was her, I would have put up, I would probably put on on one of the jackets from the crew and I'd be vigorously stuffing it with certainty. Oh boy, how stuffed can I get these packets full of, full of, uh, stuff? How much, uh, you know, can I, you know, oh boy, this is it. it. And only if I could stuff them to the gills, that would be the guarantee. Everything is going to be okay. Finally, my obsession gods is, is, is going to be, everything's going to be, our Gundak saved, a doubt gone, and all that. But then we hear the cackle of, uh, one Mafratelli and was, I guess she doesn't cackle. She said, "Mariah or you see?" And then you know the the two other Fratellis. and they have a Scott's, Even though I had my hands on what I thought was going to fix it all, even though uh, say, and even though Mikey, I think at some point said, "Hey, why don't we leave some of this stuff for for One Eyed Willie?" Which I think was the the booby trap part. I'm not sure when that happened. Uh, or no, maybe he switched the marbles. You can't, you, I guess, guys. That part was that data or Mikey or Bran, anyway, guys. Let's stick to the symbolism, right? Because there's uh, like uh, vague vague symbolism. My game, Martha Blimpton's my name. In the Fratellis, have us, guys, and they want the rich stuff, they want the certainty, too, but they're not afraid, you know. They're not about leaving anything for Willie or anything for us or sharing. And we're in trouble now, gods. Like, uh, our fears have caught up with us right at the moment of certainty. Holy message. I'm. You know, maybe I should get back in the subconscious bath, gods, because I don't know if I can handle this direct, uh, clear message exactly at the time I'm going through it in my real life. Holy Macro maloney. And yeah, I don't know where, but, but so there, the three fears are the threats of, uh, the unknown of, you know, I don't, I can't remember what we identified them as in the past, but you know, cruel, uh, fate, doom, uh, you know, that there's bad people out there and Mafratelli she looks cross. And they say, okay, kids, give us, I'm here to take your certainty away. And you say, no, just when I had a pocket full, is that what the spin doctors used to say? I got a pocket full of certainty. But now the Fratellis make us empty our pockets and they take all the certainty away. And I guess, you know, to 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 step aside the story, and say, geez, what, what am I doing vacillating? You know, this is, they said, wait a second. Is this just, is this catharsis gods, or am I here to learn something? Because I'm just vacillating again. Oh, I've been caught by the Fratellis. I guess this is it. I give up. They've taken the certainty again away. In my shoulders slump, the Goondax is lost. Uh, it's meaningless. Oh, but, and then you say, well, it can't get worse. Oh, the Fratellis say it can get worse. They're going to make us jump into the water together. And, you know, they're taking One-Eyed Willie's things, leaving not only will I have nothing, who knows what the fate beholds. Because uh, you, when you're a man like me, guys, you know that, oh, geez, well, just losing certainty's not enough. You know, these fears they want to, you know, they say you're doomed. And they say, okay, Fratelli, so how do we represent? And they say, Martha Plimpton, Mikey, Brand Brand. Andy, uh, mouth, data, junk. We're, we're gathered to gather together, uh, for, for that's it. You know, you're, you're going to jump into the doom. Your subconscious will swallow you like the black hopeless hole. It is. And everybody says, Martha, man, you're really bringing this down. I say, sorry, I didn't realize I was narrating it. Mikey, I mean, to, you know my goth like uh, preferences to, to freak you out, but uh, but it seems all is lost. Yeah, as I've seemed to only given up hope. We're, we're powerless now against you know powerless against the fear. I had the certainty that I thought would quell it, but it blinded me to the obvious fact that the fear is always pursuing. Right, God's always one step behind me, as Martha Plimpton as the Fertellis in this case. Also, I guess I've been trying to do this whole thing on my own, even though I'm surrounded by the... But I said, wait a second, we wouldn't have got through that without Andy's piano or Data and Data's grease shoes or Chester Copperpot's mistakes or Chunk eating all that ice cream or the truffle shuffle or Mikey's stick-to-itiveness or when Mouth put his tongue through the uh, painting and then somebody fell down and we found the map to one eye, Willie's rich stuff or Brand's courage, uh, and stuff, or our chance meeting with Andy and, um, me. Well, even though it's been rewritten, or, uh, Mikey's great speech about down here, it's our time out there, or the fact that, uh, Frank Whaley's character was a jerk. I said, well, again, it wasn't Frank. I say, thanks. Uh, uh, but as we walk the plank, I'd say all that flashes. Remember, so much to be grateful for. But all I can concentrate on is the fact I'm walking the plank, tied together with what I'm grateful for. But then I forget. Well, uh, what, what, what if, if I'm not seeing things in extremes? What's really important? Uh, which is uh, all those things, but also one boy's act of kindness, one boy's act of curiousness, Mikey. I thought I was rewriting myself as the lead, but now I realize that is a heroic act of uh, starting this adventure. In this, I am narrating, Mikey, even though we're on the plank, and my fratelli is telling me to be quiet and we're trying to stand up for ourselves, and the Fratellis are not happy about it. Mikey, it's your acts of curiousness. Uh, You know, maybe we started in a desperate spot, but uh, you, you answering the call to adventure, but then you answering it once again and looking deeper and then not just finding Sloth, but being kind to him. Is that what has saved us? Mikey, thank you. Maybe that is the lesson. Maybe I could have been nicer to you, Data and Data. Pa- paid more attention, Brand. Brand, got your right name. Andy, rewritten it so you were my sister, since you didn't really get a lot of screen time in this one. Uh, Chunk, you know, maybe stick in a Disney-esque movie bullet-bullying message, uh, or say, I think I did. I said, hey, I had those plaid pants with the elastic waistband, too. And yeah, I don't think my self-esteem ever recovered either. Or mouse, just say, are you acting out because you need a hug and a kiss? Yeah, maybe you are. Or maybe you're just funny and you need attention. Oh, Goonies, how I love thee as we get walk further on the plank. Mikey's act of kindness. Will it be what saves us, gods? Gods, I hate to, you know, close a prayer on a cliffhanger that's not, you know, on the old plank hanger. But luckily, God, you've watched, I think, you know, that was your assignment to watch Goonies at least once, so I'm sure you know. So, Crone, sweet, sweet Crone, Miller, Smith, Barky, Jester, Hound Dog, God. Pending, you know, we'll say, well, are you a pending, God? No, Dual, dualism, uh, God, thank you again. Uh, it really is. It just, we'll just be kind like Mikey. And and that's where the gray of the world is. Not between the extremes of Fratelli's and certainty. Maybe, but we won't know till next week, God. So thanks, God, and good night.